Welcome to or welcome back to the Journey Through Life podcast. I am Justin Barton and am the host of this show. I'm very grateful to have you as a listener today. As you listen today or to any of our other episodes, past, present, or future, and you have the name or image of a friend or family member pop into your mind, please share that episode with them. Acting on that thought can and will bring blessings and joy to you and possibly to that person that comes to mind. I'm very excited to to continue this very special to me 12-week series of the Journey Through Life podcast. This series is called Journey in Recovery. I have interviewed many different people from many different locations and lots of different backgrounds on one of each of the 12 steps of recovery as laid out originally in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Now before you shut this off and say, this doesn't apply to me, I'm asking you to please give it a shot for the next several weeks. Whether you or I are an actual addict or not, I know that we all have weaknesses in our lives. Some of those may be something that no one knows about but ourselves, but we really wish we could move past them. But as history has shown maybe in your life, uh, try as you will, you've not been able to, to leave it behind. Now I've experienced that learning of and applying the 12 steps of recovery can be beneficial to any human being who goes into it with real intent and applies the principles of these steps into their lives, that they will be able to move through any addiction, any habit, any self-destructive or unwanted behavior. This can include full-blown drug and alcohol addiction, um, including prescription medications. It could be something as dire as cutting or eating disorders, or something as seemingly insignificant, but just as gripping as video games, smartphones, social media. Now this week, we will be talking with Nick, an alcoholic and addict with over three years sobriety. In this conversation, we really focus on the importance of being constantly aware and taking minute-by-minute inventory of self and being accountable to self and others in recovery. He shares his God shot, as he calls it, where God came into his heart and made him a changed man. This conversation is a very meaningful one and is definitely heartfelt. If this is your first episode of this series or of this podcast as a whole, I highly recommend you go back and listen to all of the previous episodes of this Journey in Recovery series at some point. There are 12 steps, and they are in a prescribed order for a reason. So whether you do that now or after you listen to this episode, I really do invite you to listen to all the others and then continue with steps 11 and 12 over the next couple of weeks. This week we're covering step 10, and step 10 reads... Continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. In this and other conversations, you may be introduced to concepts that you have never before considered, or may even seem contradictory to what you have considered as truth for perhaps your whole life. But these concepts are shared as honestly and openly as possible, using real experiences that cannot be denied as being true to these people sharing them. While you listen, take mental or physical notes of ideas of self-improvement that pop into your head. Then, at the end of this podcast, review those notes and make a plan about how you can implement them. Now sit back, hit the road, work out, do house or yard work, or whatever you do while listening to podcasts, and be ready to learn and feel and gain insights like you may have never considered before. Here we go with Nick. So I'm sitting here today with Nick, and uh, I'm real excited to to talk to him. So, so Nick, why don't you introduce yourself as if you were in a 12-step meeting? 
Excellent. Um, my name is Nick. I'm an alcoholic addict. Awesome. Hi, Nick. Hello. I'm excited to be here and um, share um, kind of my experience. Awesome. Well, thank you for, for being willing to do this, and I'm really excited to get your experience. So tell me a little bit about your introduction into what eventually became your addiction. And, and you may have a story where the first time you ever experienced it, it was like this amazing thing at that time. It was amazing. So tell me about that. Definitely. Um, so I guess it, exactly what you said. Um, my addiction started the very first time I tried a substance. Absolutely fell in love with it. And, and knowing now what I know about my um, alcoholism, I know that I was masking or covering things up from an early age. Um, and uh, I've dealt with some of those traumas, but it definitely helped ease all that pain right away. And I think at the beginning, it was just for fun. And um, it kind of made me the cool kid, which made things even worse um, because I got the attention I was seeking too. Um, so, but right away, that was my, some people were good at sports. I was really good at substance abuse. As horrific as it sounds now, it was a point of pride. So how old were you when, when you first, uh, tried um, so eight or nine. Wow. Alcohol. Yeah. Um, and then full fledged, um, addiction daily use by about 13. That's rough. So, and at eight or nine and into your very early teens, you were considered the cool kid because, you know, you were doing these things that adults were doing or whatever, right? Absolutely. So how did that affect your self-esteem at that time or your, your feelings of self-worth? So it changed those because I had extremely low self-esteem, um, no self-worth. So to be the kid at the party that could bring alcohol and could do these things, um, you know, like consume a, a lot and things like that. It made me, it was my identity. It was everything. And that's what it became to be all through high school. That was who I was and what I did. And yeah, that was it. So it sounds like at this time though, it was like you mentioned, it was kind of a point of pride. When was the first time you can recall thinking this may not be the right thing for me to be doing. This might be getting out of hand. I would say that uh, the voice in the back of my head from the very beginning um, told me what I was doing was wrong. I knew what I was doing was wrong. The feelings I felt from that and all the, um, what I took as positives just quieted that voice of reason completely. And so as my addiction became stronger, the justification and everything else that goes with it, I could justify any one of my negative actions uh, almost on autopilot. And that definitely continued. That continues today. Um, but yes, I, I knew what I was doing was wrong. Absolutely. Um, and then the point um, kind of going back to your question was, I think I was, this sounds so bad, um, uh, in elementary school, drinking before school. And I remember I had, I had fallen down outside and got my new pants dirty because it had rained where I live. And I was muddy. And I remember thinking, this is like, what is happening to me? This is bad now. Hmm. In elementary school, you had that first inkling that I, this is kind of out of control, huh? Yes. Were your parents or teachers or anybody aware of, of what was going on? 
Yeah. Um, so I grew up in an alcoholic household. My dad was sober the first about 10 years of my life. And it always been drilled into my head. Do not touch alcohol. Alcohol is extremely bad. It will ruin your lives, which reflecting back now um, made it more enticing to me being told not to do something um, in a very strange way made it more, uh, I guess, of a something to try. Mm. But I knew I had always known a little bit. My dad was even involved in AA mm. and I can remember him having, maybe he would sit with his sponsor, things like that very young. And I would listen, I could hear these conversations. So I kind of had an idea what was going on, but I didn't think I was to that point yet. Mm. Not in, not in elementary school. So your parents were somewhat aware, Hey, Nick's getting into the, the, the cabinet or whatever, wherever you were getting it. Right. Yeah. There was never alcohol in the house. Um, mm. So I had to source from other places, but I, th- I think they've, they always knew, but because I wasn't getting in legal trouble, I still continued to get good grades. I was always good at home, not getting in trouble. I think it was a look the other way situation. Interesting. So what's your relationship with your parents like today? Are they still alive? Or are you still, tell me about that. They, they got divorced um, when I was about 14 or 15, something like that. So, uh, but because of my dad went back to addiction um, and that was very difficult on the whole family, kind of left the whole family. And then uh, my mom remarried. And so we just have a different relationship today. Hmm. It works. It's, yeah. it's okay. Yeah. I, I've worked through a lot of things. Um, and so the cool part now is we have a lot of friends that, that uh, we've got to make family, mm. which is cool. And and I'm assuming a lot of these friends are kind of in the recovery world. Is that what you were alluding to? A lot, um, yeah. but also a lot respect recovery. Um, and I don't ask people to not drink around me. I understand this is the real world and I'm the one that has that issue. Uh, right. But to, but to have someone respect it is very important to me. Absolutely. That's really cool. I've heard a lot of people say in recovery circles, and, and I've said it before, some of my best friends in the world are people that I don't even know what their last name is. Awesome. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. Very good. There's there's a lot of support there in, in that community. And then, like you said, I love that, that you find friends who respect recovery who aren't saying, Oh, come on, man, it's new year's Eve. Just have a, you, you can have one, one glass of wine or whatever, you know? No, they understand the, the magnitude of, of that and what that entails. Yeah. hundred percent. Oh, that's fantastic to have that support system. So tell me what your rock bottom, what does that mean to you? And what does that look, what has that looked like through your life? Um, rock bottom has always, um, well, there was a, I would, I won't say always, because there was a period of time where I felt like I had it under control, even though knowing what I know in the program, I never had anything under control. Right. Um, it was just ramping up. Um, so my rock bottom has always kind of, uh, I've always been at rock bottom. Mm. And I've heard this in the rooms, um, and I like to use it for myself, but I hit rock bottom and started digging. And so I've always been digging. But my baseline is rock bottom, if that makes any sense. Um, because I've heard many stories in the rooms and I don't like to compare obviously, but I, I feel like um, those were a daily occurrence. Some people's rock bottoms were how I woke up. I don't, uh, and I'm not trying to glamorize it at all. It was just very, very bad. And my life gets that bad 
as soon as I relapse. Every single time, worse and worse every time. So I would say my last relapse was 100% my rock bottom. And what did that look like? It just, uh, it, it took drug addiction, things that I promised myself I would never do to absolutely a daily thing. Um, and then the people I hurt with zero, I, I, it, it didn't even flash through my mind. And then a long jail sentence. So I'd always done small little time in jail. This time was a long time. So, so what you shared there is something that I've heard. You said things that I promised myself I would never do. I just blew past those things. 100%. We, we constantly, I know for me, me for instance, I draw a line in the sand and I'd say, you know, I'll go to that line, but I'll never cross that line. And then just blow right by it. All right, there's a new line. So, so tell me what your thoughts and experiences are on that. Why is that an important thing to recognize blowing past those places that you promised you would never go past? I think um, not only was I 100% okay with lying to everybody around me, I was lying to myself mm-hmm. and believing these lies and then justifying why I lied to myself again, broke another promise to myself. And so there was complete disregard for honesty, one, two, for the, my word, mm. um, and three, for having any sort of boundaries. Nothing, there was nothing, there, was, there were no boundaries at all. There's nothing off limits because of that, nope. huh? And that's how my addiction has always gone. When things start uh, to go bad, I go, it started as just an alcoholic, moved to other things. And there's absolutely no limit to the things I will do or won't do I'm, when, I'm in, when I'm in that situation. When you're in that situation, absolutely. And, and I'd like to, and we'll eventually get to kind of your perspective now as you look back on that. But I think right now I want to sit here for a few minutes and, and talk a little bit more about that. Just before we were uh, talking, I was reading a little bit. But the step 10, the first couple of uh, sentences in here reads, in our addiction, we routinely tried to convince ourselves we were right, even when we knew we were wrong. This was one of the first unsettling truths about ourselves we had to face when we came into the fellowship. So that, I mean, you're just talking about that right. (laughs) I mean, perfectly is that experience there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. How easy is it for someone who is, in active addiction, you know, struggling with things at that time, actively acting out um, to lie to themselves. It's super easy to lie to others, but how easy it is to even lie to yourself, you know? Like second nature. It's not even a thought or a second thought for me in my uh, experience. Mm. It just happens. And I can, I can lie to myself about any situation that, that works. And I even, I spoke to a counselor at one point in my life because there's certain diagnoses that go with that. I can't remember the names of these things, but when you can lie to yourself and believe these lies, eventually to find out in the rooms and mm-hmm. through this counselor, it's alcoholism. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's your disease. And, uh, but yeah, it's, it's that easy to lie to yourself. I think just as easy to, to anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember... I was probably attending a group maybe for a month and a half, you know, on a weekly basis before I came to the realization and I finally said out loud, 
and I'm a big fat liar. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I guess I always knew that I was dishonest in, in, in these things, but I had never like said anything out loud like that. And and when I said that, I was like, wow, it was, it was like a wall came down, crumbling down, you know, and I saw <laughs> a lot of the big fat lies that I had told myself and everybody else, but myself, it was the most painful. It was like, how could I even believe that or justify that? So is that something that you've also... Can you relate to that? Absolutely. Um, I, and to your experience, uh, almost like something you see in the movies. Um, I explain it like my God shot where things crumbled around me. And I was, I felt broken at this point. I mean, I had been emotional, but to finally be honest with yourself, it sounds like such a uh, small thing, but to say, oh my gosh, I've been lying to myself. I am the biggest liar. Not about small things, not about big things, all things. And to finally be honest like that, even to tell uh, in the circle, is so freeing, I mm-hmm. guess, eye-opening, and then a little bit overwhelming too. Um, yeah. But but I guess that's when the work starts. Mm. That but that initial like just that's me. Uh, I'm the liar, or I am the problem, or I am whatever it is. It's about me and my part in it, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you mentioned early on in this conversation. And, and it's on the same line that you initially felt and the voice in the back of your head was saying, this is wrong. And you felt that little twinge of guilt or whatever it may have been at that time. But at that eventually when you just raced past it, it went away. Uh, a phrase that I am familiar with in, in this, and it's from my religious background rather than from recovery, but it's, it's called past feeling. You know, you've, you've become past feeling because of, whatever justifications, actions, whatever it is that, uh, that comes that way. And, and one thing that I experienced is I saw it being past feeling because it hurt too much to feel. I didn't want that feeling. Um, and, and it sounds like that, that God shot you're talking about, all of a sudden you felt. Tell me that, what that felt like the first time you felt Um, I can't remember the first time, but I can remember the last time or the one that counted, I guess I would say I was, this is sounds silly, but I was in jail. My cellmate was very spiritual, believe it or not. Uh, he gave me a Bible the first day I came in Mm -hmm. and my initial feeling was to hand it back because past feeling, I didn't want to accept responsibility. I knew the truth is in that book. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I don't want it around me because I want to be, I'm comfortable in this misery like I've been. Um, But it took a couple hours. We prayed together Mm. and my life changed from that second to current moment right now. So when you prayed together, that's when it happened, huh? I lost it. Um, As hard as you are, as tough as you want to be. And in a situation like that, I let everything go. It was it. That was it. That was my moment. Um, huh. And since since then, um, I have this image of God, me drowning. I'm mm-hmm. underwater looking up. Um, he's had his hand here the whole time, but I've been swatting it away and trying to mm-hmm. swim away, but still drowning. So that day in jail, I reached, grabbed his hand, and it was, I've been here the whole time. You know, uh, not making me feel guilty, just welcome home. <laughs> and so since then, the communication has just been wide open. Awesome. So in that prayer with your cellmate, were you the voice or was your roommate, the, your cellmate, the voice? 
who was praying out loud? Um, my soulmate. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, it was, uh, it's still emotional to think about. It's just the most powerful thing I've ever experienced. And I hear about a lot of things, but that was my first experience with it. Uh, his, it was his voice. Yes. Mm-hmm. He was saying the prayer, but I believe it was all God. I oh, mean, yeah. we really were, had nothing to do with that at that point. Do you remember what was said at the time? What he said in that? Uh, it was something to the degree that, you know, Nick, Nick is here broken and the decisions he's made over the last, uh, you know, like months. I've got him here. We just protect you while he's in here. And um, when he gets out, something, something to that degree, I, w- I wish I knew. But you just felt that overwhelming. Completely. Overwhelming. Feeling. Yes. Awesome. That's such a blessing to have that in your life. And you know, I totally uh, relate to the swatting God's arm away. I got this, you know, that yeah. that's my favorite. That's my go-to line when I'm, a mess. I got this. I, I got myself in here. I have to get myself out. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else in the leading up to or the rock bottom part of your recovery, addiction and recovery story that you want to talk about now before we get into talking about step 10? Maybe just a little bit more to the backstory. Things okay. that I always dealt with, um, extreme jealousy, like we talked about early, no self-confidence actually believing that I was the smallest in the room, maybe not physically, uh, but mentally and everything, everything else. I always felt that way. So never felt like I fit in all of these things. And that just continued on whether, whether I was in active addiction or not. uh, I struggled with those, with those things. Hmm. How has that thought process changed? I'm sure you don't think of yourself as, as the greatest in the room still, but uh, tell, tell me what, what your thoughts are with that now. Um, I, I use some of those hard times. I, I've been through complete worse, uh, so that helps. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the whole idea of turning it over to God when things get difficult. When I first got sober would be second to second. Almost every thought that came in my mind, I would turn over to God because everything was too overwhelming at this point. I would say, please, God, take this from me. I cannot handle this right now. Mm. And God would would help me with all these things. Um, now that I've got a little bit of time, um, I still do it, uh, but it's not it's not as often. Mm. So what what is your sobriety date, if you don't mind me asking? I don't. So um, I think it was 2016, uh, day day after Christmas, or I'm so not, we're coming I'm right up sure. on it, huh? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I don't count the days anymore. Right. I once we got past. A year, maybe two years, I was, um, I felt good again. Because I've had long-term sobriety. Um, sobriety meaning I wasn't drinking or right. or anything else, but I, not healthy at all. Mm. So this is the first time real sobriety on all aspects. Awesome. So when when I reached out to you, and said, Hey, here are the steps that, uh, that I have left to cover. You got back to me and said, I'd love to do step 10. Yes. So I'm going to read step 10 at the heading to it. And then let's talk about that. So step 10 is continued, continued to take personal inventory. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. So tell me about step 10 and what that phrase means to you and then how you practice it. So for me, in my sobriety, I, I don't want to say it's fragile, 
but if I let one thing slip by a lie, um, an inappropriate thought, the next thing, um, where we go back talking about justification, I can justify any bad behavior once then. So I have to have my mind on the tightest leash, which means the continue to take personal inventory. I used to think it was at the end of the day, let's inventory the whole day and reflect. That's not how I do it today. It's mm. thought by thought, go back. Was that appropriate? Okay. What should we do? And if I was wrong, promptly admit it or whatever corrective action needs to be done. Mm. Um, because I have to be so, uh, I guess because it means so much to me now. Mm. This is extremely important. Uh, just the maintenance of you know taking personal inventory or taking stock of any emotion, jealousy, anything that comes into my mind has to be dealt with at that point. I almost can't wait till the end of the day. And I, like I said, it's not as bad as it was. Um, my racing thoughts and mind and things like that. But my autopilot or my default is to be a liar, mm-hmm. um, dishonest, and think of the worst things. Again, with God's help, everything's a lot easier. Right. Um, but still, it still tries to get away sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm putting myself in the shoes of somebody who may be listening who is battling themselves right now saying, no, I am not an addict. I just have a little problem that I've been trying to take care of unsuccessfully for 30 years or, you know, whatever it may be, you know? Absolutely. And they hear you say, I have to keep my mind on the strictest leash. They might immediately go, uh, there is no way I'm going to do that. I don't want to do that. Then I'm in slavery to, to whatever is there. So tell me, is that, what, is that how you see it right now? Or tell me how you see that. No, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, it's totally the complete opposite. Mm. I, would, I would embrace this. Um, well, I'll explain it this way. The misery and muck and mire I lived in completely until the last three years compared to my life right this second. Um, I will do whatever it takes to maintain this and not go back to that situation. Mm. That's, that's the difference for me. It, it may seem like maintenance, things like this. I, again, that is a drop in, a, in the bucket compared to the things that I had to do in my addiction, maintaining lies, running, constantly running, scrambling, always panic. And, and uh, mm. when you're in addiction, you understand what that panic is. It's, it, life is so much easier today that the uh, tight leash on my mind is, mm. is nothing, absolutely nothing, and well worth it. Yeah. I mean, you hear about people saying, I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop, whereas when we're in active addiction, it's rain in shoes and we're just trying. <laughs> There's <laughs> not the good. other shoe. It's millions of shoes coming around. Huh? Yep. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, so... With step 10, you say it's a kind of a minute by minute thing. Give me an example of a time when, where you've had a thought, you've said something, you've done something where you suddenly went, hmm, that was not appropriate, the, the right thing to do right now. And you then took the, the, the actions or steps necessary to make it right immediately. With the lying behavior or dishonesty that comes um, almost first in my mind before the truth comes out um, would be exaggeration too. Mm. Um, so just during this interview, if you want me to think of the most recent, 
my mind wants to go to an exaggeration. Mm. Um, and I have to correct myself all the time. I do that even just in speaking with my wife. I have to go, there must have been 30 cars. And wait a minute. No, there were two cars in front of, you know, yeah. and it's that. And I know that doesn't sound like a big deal to people, but to me, 100% honesty has to, has to be, um, or, or everything else goes haywire. And I'm mm. off and running with, with everything, maybe not right away, but I know from the past that the one lie goes through my, my mind thinks it's okay. We're on to two, on to three, on to four. And then we're who knows where. One thing that I have heard and I try to put into practice the best I can imperfect, imperfectly, but um, is if you always tell the truth, you can have a crappy memory and you'll still be fine, you know, because agreed. <laughs> weaving I, those lies. How, how do you remember what? Uh, <laughs> absolutely. And I have, um, this has been recent within the last couple months. I used to never be able to say, I don't know. Okay. I, mm. I would lie to you before I told you, I don't know, because that makes me seem not smart. Um, I say, I don't know all day, uh, mm. <laughs> which is a big thing for me. Again, these small things I know sound relevant and tiny, but they make a big difference to me, especially um, taking it as seriously as we now do. And uh, with that maintenance step, decision by decision, by thought by thought, just has to be a quick correction. Otherwise, um, I used to explain it like um, this. The horse is my mind. I am riding the horse or controlling the horse. And it wants to keep turning right, wants to keep going right. I have to constantly correct or we're going in circles and back the, the area we don't, we don't want to be or that we've been too many times before. So, so the, the method you use now in working your step 10 day, you're maintaining, you know, right away. Have you ever done like a, I don't know, a daily spreadsheet or something like that to, to work mm -hmm. your 10 step 10? What have those looked like? Um, well, I used to journal, uh, early on a lot of journaling, uh, even explain. And that was the reflection at the end of the day, going back, mm -hmm. what happened today? What made me angry? What were those emotions? And that was, uh, I think, just the self-reflection, which I still continue to do. I don't put it on paper anymore, um, but was very eye-opening, I guess, to see. Hmm. Uh, well, what, why would you get jealous of this? You know, and then f or find out that jealousy was even the the emotion behind that. Hmm. Uh, so, but it helps moving forward to know. Okay, I have a problem with these things: jealousy, self-esteem, and everything really <laughs> almost every emotion hmm. that's good um so why why have you chosen not to to continue journaling you know physical journaling i would say time i guess um so what i do is between clients when i work it's a lot of driving and that's my reflection time hmm. and I, and then i can reflect back two hours instead of the whole day and then also being right on top of a situation helps. So I, I like to think that I do my step 10 a thousand times a day, hmm. just the constant, constant maintenance. And, and that's sounds like that's kind of where you live is in that yep. daily maintenance. You know, some people will say I live in, well, one of the guys that I've talked to so far, it was on step two and he goes, I live in step two. This is where yeah. I live and this is where I, you know, I, I have to. And that's really cool that step 10 is yours. So what, what other of the steps have, have been kind of important to you in your, in your own recovery? Turning everything over to God, mm. like I said, in that jail cell was 
uh, I guess the most important because that set everything in motion. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe turning everything over to God, I guess, was that. And moving forward, I, I mean, I still do that. Like I said, if if something seems too overwhelming in my mind, I have to give it to God because it's too big for me to handle. And I know that when I get overwhelmed, I'll procrastinate, lie, cheat, steal, and then we're again. Here we go. So. That's that's really interesting. So so one of the words that comes to my mind as I as I think about your your practice of step ten, your daily maintenance or your minutely maintenance basically, mm-hmm. and your turning things over to God. The word that comes to my mind with that is surrender. Mm-hmm. Tell, first, tell me what surrender meant to you, you know, ten years ago, five years ago, and what it means to you now. Okay, defeat. I would say. Well, five years ago, surrender, surrender was, I, I'm weak. I can't handle it. I'm less than a man. Things like this would pop in my head. Today means I'm weak. <laughs> I can't handle it. But I, I accept that. And again, I surrender. I can't handle these things. But I'm glad to hand them over to you, God. Mm. Because, I know, because I have complete trust that you'll take care of this through past experiences, through daily, everything that gets taken care of or all the blessings in my life. Mm. I know that God has this and I don't doubt that. So um, the difference of surrender from then to now, I, I guess is night and day, but I'm okay with it. It's, it still says the same things. It just has different meaning where I am weak. Yes, I am weak. I am very weak. And I will mm-hmm. tell anybody that, um, but I'm okay with that. Yeah, man. I love that, that you used the same words to describe it. And yet it's such a different concept. Completely. Because initially I'm weak. I'm less than I can't deal with life in, in pretty much any other place in the world means I'm curling up in a ball in the corner and just waiting for life to kick me over and over and over again. Whereas when you say it in recovery, I'm weak, I'm less than, um, I can't handle this on my own. It's like I'm standing up, hands outstretched, saying, I can't do this, but I know you can, God. And here I go. I'm going to walk on and until the next thing comes to me that I can't handle and give it to you, huh? Absolutely. It's ex- that's exactly it. It's the same words, totally different meaning. That's awesome. Thank you for expounding on that. That's uh, no I love that. Okay, so if somebody were to approach you, and say, hey, Nick, I'm uh, really struggling with alcohol or whatever, you know, and I think I've got a problem. I, I see that you are doing some things in your life. Tell me a little bit about it. How, how would you go about sharing hope, I guess, with someone else? Um, I, I guess I always try to turn on, uh, maybe find a different way other than telling my complete story. I don't know. I I don't know how much that helps people to know that. I mean, it it may, I guess it depends on the situation because some people I've spoke to, I have to explain that. Um, I know exactly where you're at. And I also know, um, where things go from here. Um, if you continue down this path. So if I need to elaborate on that, I I guess I would, um, Mm -hmm. but I rather share all the positives in my life because if you know me, um, from back then I am, I'm still the same Nick. I just uh, have a way better life. Mm. So I would like to share those positives with somebody. Um, and then I could also share, I guess, a little bit how, how I get there. 
So instead of going, you know, with my past, I'll tell you about where I am today, maybe. Yeah. Have you had those opportunities of people approaching you and saying, dude, I'm lost. What do I need to do? Yes, um, a a few. Um, But I've also reached out to a few um, because I, you can see it, Mm -hmm. you know, yep. Uh, especially close people. Um, and so I like to share that. I like to share the hope, which is great. So I have had a, that opportunity. Yeah. So let's say there's somebody that's near where you lived in rock bottom. Mm-hmm. There's a, a start in my mind, there's a stark difference between powerlessness and hopelessness. How do you share hope with somebody who feels like there is no hope? Cause I'm sure you felt like there's no hope. For a long time. Absolutely. Um, I think the spirituality piece is the most important um, because when you feel powerless or feel hopeless, um, for me, the only one that can change those feelings is God. And so far has been, continues to be the only one that can change those feelings. Uh, So, I would encourage someone just to open up those channels, whom, whoever God is to them, get back in communication. Maybe you had it at one point. Um, and if not, sort that out. That, that's been the biggest thing for me, mm. definitely. What was your perception of God previous to this experience, that God shot moment you were talking about? I grew up in church my whole life. I was born, raised in church. I know who God is. Um, but as soon as I was deep in, in my misery and addiction, um, I turned that off and actually went the opposite way. Even though, being honest, right now, I knew the whole time, whole time what I was doing. Even when I would say things out, out loud, denying God, things like these, mm-hmm. I... I, I still knew. Hmm. I knew what I was doing. It was still there. Hmm. Um, but it didn't fit in the schedule of addiction. Um, having that there, having God in my heart, um, it was very uncomfortable to hear things about God and things like that. So I would push it as far away as I could. Because I... I li- I liked being there on a on a very disturbing level. It was comfortable. It was where I wanted to be. As much as I would talk about how miserable I was, it, there was a small piece of me that enjoyed being there. Uh, in that absolute destruction and devastation. Hmm. Uh, did you feel like it was easy to be in that destruction and devastation, or was it hard to be there and you just wanted to be there? I think it took work to stay there. Yeah. But to to make changes to better myself wouldn't allow me to justify uh what I wanted to keep doing. Mm. So yeah, it would it would it would sometimes be a struggle to stay there. And and all the time I guess I knew the way out. But again, knowing about my disease now, it wasn't necessarily the substance. It was all my other issues that I had to deal with. And that was a, just a, you know, a symptom of, of my disease. I, there are going to be people listening that say disease, what the heck addiction? That's not a disease. That's a choice. 
Uh, tell me a little bit about your perception of that. Uh, going back, all the way back, um, before I, you know, touched substances, I can remember not feeling adequate, all these things. And, and I talk to people and normies or people right. that don't struggle with addiction don't have these feelings, thoughts, emotional um, issues, I guess, that I, that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, it's a disease. Um, but is there choice in that? So, so yes, and, and I'm totally on board with what you're saying. I just want to see how we can communicate this in a way where somebody can go, oh, okay, well, I guess I can see that. So we have this disease, and I like to compare it to, you know, diabetes, where yeah. maybe even the, the, I think it's type two is the type that you get into because of many times because of poor eating choices or whatever else, you know, but it's there and, uh, and, and it will be there until we're safely dead. But where does choice fit in? Because I mean, in recovery, we have to make a choice and a series of choices every day so that this disease doesn't ravage, ravage us. So where does choice fit in there? Um, Choice just, coming back to step 10 quickly is I make a decision when those thoughts come in my mind to do right. Uh, constantly. I make a choice to make the, the right decision because if I don't left to my own thoughts or where things default to, I go back to the same. That horse just goes in a circle then, huh? Yep. If I don't correct that, we're back to where we were. Hmm. Very cool. No, I appreciate that. Uh, and I think that although many people still will say you just don't have the willpower or the, the moral fortitude or whatever it may be, man, that's a tough one to, to battle when people are, are, are saying things like that. But I would say to the person saying those things, maybe willpower was I was not allowed home. I had little babies, little daughters um, <laughs> that mean the world to me. My wife that's uh, been there for me through thick and thin. I wanted to be in my house with my family. So it wasn't about willpower. I, If I could will myself to stop drinking or drugs um, to get back in that house and be a good dad that I wanted to be, that I was meant to be, I would have done that. It's not about willpower. Um, so no. Um, so here's here's a question I wanted to come back to. You mentioned earlier that uh, you know you had previously had some stints of sobriety, or um, but it's it was different. It's different now than it was then. So I have four terms here that I'd like to get your definition of each of them and and why you define it this way. So the four terms: first one is abstinence, second one sobriety. Third one's recovery, and the fourth one's healing. Now, tell me, tell me your definition of those things and how that fits into this. Abstinence, Abs- to abstain. Well, for me, there's certain triggers, like like anything else. Abstin. So to abstain, uh, complete people, places, and things that I need to avoid to not fall into very easy traps that I've fallen into a thousand times. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me. I don't go hang out in a bar. I can't. 
Um, some people with a long time recovery can do things like that. I may be able to, but I choose not to. There's no reason for me to do those things. So I would steer clear of that. I guess maybe that abstaining from all harmful situations, obvious harmful situations. I mean, there's things that come up that, right. that I have to address. Um, sobriety is my life. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's my life and that's what everything for me hinges on the life I have today. Yes. Okay. Recovery. Recovery is daily. Uh, recovery is happening daily. It's a constant reflection. It's constantly redirecting. Um, but it is amazing. Uh, again, I credit all, all the things I have today to my life in recovery. Um, and it's not a one and done thing, but I'm okay with that again, because of all the benefits, it may sound like work or, or hassle or a hindrance or, or a something to somebody else. But to me, I welcome it because it's nothing compared to the work it was to, to be in inactive addiction, I guess. And then the last term is healing. Healing um, is really cool because, uh, like I explained, drinking was uh, uh, one symptom of my disease. Uh, getting through some of those hangups that I used to use as justifications um, to use was a healing process. I'm still in my healing process, but it gets easier every day. And it's so freeing, so freeing to let things go or to be completely healed of something. Or again, part of healing is um, admitting that you're the the one with the issue. Uh, just extremely freeing. Yeah. Well, very cool. Thank you for those. How important for you and how important do you believe it is to, for someone to get into a program and get a sponsor and work the steps? Um, I think extremely important. I, at least Go in and talk to somebody or go to one meeting, find your meeting because there's several types of different types of rooms. Um, don't make a judgment on the first when you go in, find yours, give it a chance, give it a real chance too, because again, we lie to ourselves. <laughs> and if you go in, you will find a, a one hiccup in the, in the room um, and count yourself out and justify why you don't need to be there. So be truthful with yourself. Uh, give it a real chance. Yeah. Um, and then find somebody, maybe not the first person you encounter either. Um, check out some sponsors. Give them an interview. See if it's a good fit. Mm. And don't go on your first instinct because most times in my experience, it's not the person you would hope it would be mm. um, in, in a good sponsor. In my experience. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about that experience where finding the sponsor that was sure. the right one for you kind of went over some rocks or whatever? <laughs> one of um, one of my first sponsors was very early on. Um, kind of the loudest, coolest guy, I would say, in the room. Mm. Um, definitely looked cool to me. Anyway, he had uh, relapsed and, and we didn't really get anywhere. Um, so. Mm-hmm. But one of my best was a guy about, I don't know, maybe triple my age mm. that we really had nothing in common at all. And I actually thought he was very mean at the beginning when I mm. first met him. But yeah, that was good. 
So I like how you said that. So, so my sponsor was one who just kicked my butt military style. Yeah. And, uh, that it was kind of a turnoff to me at first. It's like, what? And, but as I, I guess humbled myself or was humbled, I recognized that that's what, that's actually how I needed it to happen in my life was somebody to really put my feet to the fire. And, and if I even questioned anything, he'd say, all right, well, if you don't want me as your sponsor anymore, you got till four o'clock this afternoon to let me know and I'll move on and (laughs) whatever, you know? And, and I was like, wait, what? (laughs) I totally get it. Those, the person that uh, needs to be your sponsor may not be the person you would choose. (laughs) Absolutely not. Cause I like how you said, you know, the coolest guy in the room and it didn't work out, you know? So yeah, he, he was too. He, he ran the meeting. He really cool guy anyway. Just didn't work out. Yeah. The last, let's see, he was about like 77 years old. And he used to tell me every, everything I would say coming out of my mouth early on was you're lying to me. Oh, uh, but I would have to reflect. And I sometimes genuinely would be like, I'm not lying. We would reflect back or think back and talking later on with him. I'm like, how he said, listen, you, I knew everything you were saying was a lie. You were lying to yourself. You were lying to everyone else. Um, I wanted you to, to, to see how it felt. Anyway, it was, it was a big turning point. Like, like we talked about with the, mm. I am a liar. Yeah. That's funny. You're, you're lying about that. Everything. Yeah. Even <laughs> things that I wasn't, you know. Right. But lying. he just wanted to make sure you were reflecting and making sure. No, that's awesome. So um, before we close this up, Nick, there's going to be somebody listening to this, I'm sure, who's who's on the fence. And like we mentioned earlier, maybe in denial or thinking, oh, maybe I do have a problem. Maybe I do need to do something. If you wouldn't mind kind of issuing an invitation to that person of, yes, come join, but a testimonial of what you have learned through your own uh, journey in recovery. Again, with honesty try to be honest with yourself when making a decision to, to enter into recovery um, and, and just realize that you aren't as happy as you think you are. Again, you're lying to yourself or, or your substance is lying to you for sure. Just come check it out because the other side is so much more freeing and any excuse you have um, is simply that let it go. Please let it go. Life is just much better on this side. And it is worth living if, if you're at that point, because I've been there too. Mm. I've been there too, where you feel like there is no one else. And the only way is out. Um, it's not, and you will, you will make it through. Um, so just come into one of the rooms and ask for help. You're not alone at all. There are millions of us and we can help. There's people at all, all different stages. Um, so just come give it a chance. Let it go. Hmm. That's awesome. So last question. I'm going to read this and then ask you the question. Step 12 reads, having had a spirit, spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics, addicts, uh, and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Nick, how do you try to live your step 12? Maintaining sobriety, maintaining honesty, and then being a helping hand. Um, I was very um, 
apprehensive and anxious to do this interview even. But if this helps one person, I'm continuing my step 12. Um, also just being an example, I guess, of the benefits of not only maybe of the program, but of sobriety in general, just living a clean life, healthy life, honest life, spiritual life, um, and showing what can happen when you do turn your life around and finally be honest with yourself and everyone else. Awesome. Thank you, Nick. Is there anything else you want to share before we close this up? Just back to step 10, just honestly owning and accepting your flaws. Uh, that's, that's a big piece. I had just written that down. Um, and that's just, just a big part of step 10, but I really appreciate this opportunity. And I love that owning and accepting your flaws. Thanks, Nick. This was so much fun. I appreciate it. Excellent. Thank you so much, Justin. So there's step 10 for you. Continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Thanks again, Nick. So if you felt or were motivated to take some steps in your own life to make some changes, I invite you, just as Nick did there at the end, to take those steps. Enter a room. Give it a chance. Find a sponsor and start on the path. Life really is so much better in recovery. Now for the housekeeping part of the program. Please go and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at at JTL Podcast. Like and follow us. Um, Also go check out our website, www.jtlpod.com. You can go back and listen to all of the old episodes there and uh, learn a little bit more about the origins of this project of the Journey Through Life, which started out as a podcast called Know and Do. You can also drop us a note about your own experiences, strength, and hope at thejtlpodcast at gmail.com. And please visit our sponsors, who I have purposely not put at the beginning of these episodes during this series, but they really are helping this podcast continue forward. They are alifeuntold.com, shepherdbrackets.com, radfordpineshomedecor.com. Now use promo code JUSTIN with a life untold to save 10% on your order. And that really is a really cool product and service that they do about recording a person's life story in a hardbound book. And then at shepherdbrackets.com and radfordpineshomedecor.com, they team up and they provide the really the best floating shelf brackets on the market. They're revolutionary. And then Radford Pines provides the solid hardwood um, floating shelves that fit perfectly on those brackets. Fantastic companies, fantastic products. And when you're there, choose or use... Uh, promo code JTLPOD5 at checkout to save 5% on your orders at both of those places. Now, these conversations that I've recorded in this Journey in Recovery series have been life-changing for me as I have been applying many new concepts into my own daily life from the lessons I am learning. And I'm definitely becoming a different and better person for it. And I hope you are too. Have a fantastic week and press forward one day at a time. Mm -hmm.